0: Recorded at Get a Grip Studios in Toronto, Canada. A Get a Grip Management production and in association with the Get a Grip on Lighting podcast. Financially supported by the National Association of Innovative Lighting Distributors and presented by the National Lighting Bureau, the Illuminating Engineering Society, and the International Dark Sky Association. Added to the IES's 2021 Progress Report, this is Starving for Darkness, a podcast. Hey, folks, starting for Darkness is coming in hot in one second. Jane's ready to go, I know that, and you guys are ready to listen. But before we do, we got to talk about Evluma, the people that sponsor this show, the magicians, dot com. Hover over products, click Dark Sky Friendly, and hit up that OmniMax, Greg.
1: And why you do that is because the OmniMax can fit in just about every existing outdoor fixture that's out there. It's a retrofit uh, bulb itself and it has a Kelvin temperatures from 2K up to 5K, medium and multiple base, 20KV to 10K surge protection, has a photo control fail safe, which if your photo cell goes out, this bulb, we'll call it, learns it over time, and then it will mimic whatever that photo cell did. So it knows what it needs to do without the expense of having to go and replace the photo cell. And all of it's in a compact size, so it's gonna fit in your existing fixture.
0: Go to evluma.com, hover over dark products hover over products click on dark sky friendly lighting God, they're so they're doing it so right check them out evlumen.com now here comes starving for darkness
2: hello listeners and darkness lovers welcome to another episode of starving for darkness my name is Jane Slade and I'm so pleased to bring on bring on our next guest Megan Porter PhD Dr. Megan Porter is an associate professor in the School of Life Sciences at the University of Hawaii at Manoa. Her research program at the Porter Vision Lab is focused on understanding the evolution of animal eye diversity, particularly from a molecular perspective. Megan, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. And we start every episode with the same request. Would you please tell us about a dark sky experience that left you with a feeling of awe?
3: Oh, absolutely. Um, oh, there are many, but I think uh, in, in most recent history, um, a lot of the work that I do involves collecting at night. Um, so I study uh, things that live in the ocean, and a lot of those are are collected at night. They're attracted to lights at night. Um, yeah. and so we use that to our advantage to collect them. Uh, and, um, before moving to Hawaii, much of my work was done, uh, in Australia, and the Northern great barrier reef. And there are many nights. I can remember standing out in the ocean and about waste, deep water, uh, no one else around. And just the, the dark sky above me, uh, with, my light being the only light. Um and so I, I was looking at all these things in the ocean swimming, which is is sort of a, a sky and sort of universe of its own and then looking up and seeing the Milky Way and and all of the stars that you can see without any uh being close to any human population anyway. Um it's it's very memorable memorable nights of collect field work and collecting. Um those nights. They're very very tranquil and um peaceful. <laughs>
2: Yeah, That's well, a thing, you're commu-
3: yeah,
2: I mean, you're communing <laughs> almost twice over with nature, because not only are you underneath this natural dark night sky, but you're also feeling everything that the ocean is giving you too—the the feeling of the waves, the animals. So it sounds like a very deeply connected experience. And actually, I've recently been having all these thoughts about how the natural daylight cycle, you know, we talk about presence and you know when we're in electric light actually it's sort of like a disconnection from the natural daylight cycle but the natural daylight Absolutely. cycle is sort of this like connected light source that all living things tap into so you were there connecting to the natural light cycle which is a way of connecting into the present moment so let's dive into your work so you have a okay. vision lab the porter vision lab congrats to you that's amazing i'm just so proud to see you. a female uh accomplish um such a feat to have your own research lab because i i know that that is always the goal and it's not it doesn't happen for every um phd so um congrats no, it's on getting that harder and harder yeah. thank you <laughs> it re- yeah it really is and so on your website, you state that your primary focus is on the molecular evolution of crustacean visual systems, and development of that of anything that has unusual eyes. <laughs> so, can you yes. talk about just your your work uh, in the macro?
3: <laughs> sure. And uh, since starting my own lab, my my work has really diversified a lot because of the interests of my students. Right? They they get to mm-hmm. decide what they are interested in working on. Uh, and our, our criteria here is as long as it's got eyes or detects light in some way, um, we can <laughs> study it using the sort of mm-hmm. techniques that we use. So my research background was focused really on crustaceans. So um, think of crabs, shrimp, lobsters, those sorts of things, crayfish, and understanding their visual systems. And my work is really based in understanding the molecules that detect light in visual systems. So the protein mm-hmm. that's actually responsible for detecting light and then uh, basically telling the cell that it has detected light of a particular uh, wavelength, which we see as color. Um,
2: mm-hmm.
3: So understand the ev- evolution of that, how different animals can see different colors is all based, uh, at, at the most basic level, on the molecules that they have, and the differences between those molecules, that's a protein we call opsin. So mm-hmm. my work is 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 based in in looking at animal eyes, seeing how many types of opsins they express, and we can then look at those proteins, look at their structure, look at their composition, and we can make some inferences about their visual systems that way. Um, I started off in vision studying crabs, lobsters, and then sort of moved to mantis shrimp, which a lot of people are familiar with uh, for many reasons, because they are uh, really aggressive, which people like. They hmm. they have a tendency to, to hit things first and, and then investigate, uh, and they have one of the fastest strikes in the animal kingdom. Um, wow. But they also have a really complex visual system uh, that we are still trying to understand. So prior to my work on the molecular side of things, they they had characterized using physiological techniques that they had you know, up to 16 different types of photoreceptors. Um, for comparison, we have three photoreceptors for color vision, uh, a, a separate uh, photoreceptor for, for night vision, um, some birds have five different photoreceptors so they they have sort of this level of complexity that's at least three times more most other animals that have been studied so, yeah this
2: has been was uh, one of my questions for you because <laughs> you know i i had heard that some aquatic species have just an amazing array of photoreceptors which you know yes. humans are always like imagine if there was a color we hadn't seen <laughs> And it turns out yes. there's a lot of colors we're not seeing. So um, yeah, yes. that's so, so interesting. So this animal is really seeing the world in a completely different way than we are. Is that part of it why is. you're so fascinated?
3: That is, that is certainly part of it is, is my, my fascination with animal vision is because our, as very visual creatures, right? So much of how we interact with the world around us is visual. And we Mm -hmm. tend to transfer that perspective to everything when most things in the world, most animals in the world have a very different uh, visual perspective, right? Their perception Mm -hmm. is very different than ours. And I'm trying, very fascinated by trying to understand how other animals are seeing the world, what sorts of information are they um, detecting that we aren't, what sorts of visual cues can they see that, we're completely blind to, um, mm-hmm. it's, it's just how how we, and certainly how other animals view the world informs so much of their behavior, their circadian and seasonal rhythms. I mean, light drives everything. And so understanding how other systems interact with that can tell us a lot about the biology of a particular species.
2: Yes, so in your work, Um, what are you, I mean, this is the million dollar question for this episode. So, (laughs) uh, well let's, before I ask that question, you study bioluminescence and according to your website, this is rare on land, but extremely common in the deep sea being found in 80% of the animals living between 200 and a thousand meters. Um, and so, uh, can you talk about your work in bioluminescence?
3: Sure, and this is, um, there are many fantastic researchers um, who have been studying bioluminescence for much longer than I have, but my perspective again is trying to understand the molecules behind light detection and in this case, light production. So sort of expanded Mm -hmm. to thinking about both sides of that equation in a biological context. So in, in in an organism, how are organisms producing light what are they mm-hmm. using that for, and then how are they detecting it as well? And so we are part of a, a my lab is part of a collaboration um, with a few other people looking specifically at a, a group of shrimp um, that uh, live in the ocean, uh, midwater. So they and they migrate, so they tend to leave, live deeper at night. Uh, sorry, during the day and come up at night, and they mm-hmm. have uh, different species have different modes of, of bioluminescence. Um, we're specifically looking at those that have these light emitting structures called photophores. And, uh, Mm -hmm. these are structures on the body that produce light, um, generally on the underside, but they can have them sort of all over their, their back and along sort of their eyes Uh, and different species have them in different places. Um, they're typically thought to be used for for counter illumination. So it's a form of camouflage in, in the open ocean. Interesting.
2: So wow. it's
3: you know, if you think about the ocean light is coming from above, it typically gets uh, scattered and absorbed. So the deeper you get the bluer the light gets. And so mm-hmm. if you are a predator hunting from below and you're looking up, you can see the shadow of things against the light coming from above. Um, but if you are trying to avoid being eaten and you can produce blue light that matches what's that's coming wow. down from the surface, then you could be able to hide sort of out in the open, as it were.
2: Um, that's beautiful. That's one strategy that's beautiful. anyway. Yeah.
3: Um, so that, yeah, living in the open ocean is hard. That There's no place to hide. So, you know, animals have taken different strategies to that, uh, bioluminescence being potentially one of those
2: uh my research in particular
3: yeah. yeah
2: go go ahead oh well i was going to ask uh so light is dissipating slowly with each sort of foot you go down in depth uh and then it's really the blue light that can travel the best under to the deeper levels um but what about led blue light and the photo um l- the light pollution that we're seeing in water um how, how, how it's, much does that penetrate the ocean?
3: So I think it is uh, a massive, potentially massive, uh, impact on marine organisms that people, hasn't been well studied yet, I guess, except yeah. in particular areas. There, there's some research groups, for example, in the Arctic, the polar Arctic that has the polar night where it's dark 24 hours a day during certain times of the mm-hmm. year. Um, And so there've been people studying light pollution up there where animals are not seeing any light. So coming in with with ships that are all lit up or any of those sorts of things, like how, what effect is that having on marine life? So it's definitely impacting marine life in ways that are only beginning to be studied, I would say. Um, And it may be changing, um, certainly sort of, you know, coastal regions that have lots of light pollution say here on Hawaii, we have a big, you know, tourist industry, there are giant high rises on the beach with lights everywhere that is going to impact anything within that light radius, uh, that, that is moving around at night, um, potentially, um, bringing things in from the ocean that wouldn't normally be there, um, Mm -hmm. changing rhythms and it's going to have a huge impact that, that, that we don't totally understand yet. Um so there's that kind of of interaction in the ocean as well as, you know, these massive boats moving around the ocean that are all lit up yep. are going to have more localized effects on where things are in the water column, how high they are, where they are moving around. Um all of that.
2: Yeah, I mean this makes me want to ask some questions out loud that I don't I know I don't have the answers to and maybe maybe you do or you don't because <laughs> it's veering more into the lighting realm, but Um, it has been cited that a fixture, a single LED fixture can actually pollute up to 120 miles away, but that's through air. And so what is it through water? And another interesting fact is that we often, uh, when we measure light pollution from space, um, the satellites don't actually even take into account the full bandwidth of light, specifically blue light, mm-hmm. so we may not be actually measuring so I find it interesting that blue light doesn't reach it to reach to space for the satellites to measure for whatever reason, or maybe the satellite uh you know maybe the satellite's not able to to quantify the blue light I don't know what the reason behind that is, so listeners, if you know, please reach out to us. But I find it interesting that it does penetrate the bellows of the water. So it's—I just think that's an that more clarity is certainly needed around that topic, and and so you um, here's my million-dollar question. So what are you seeing in regards to light pollution and aquatic species? So
3: I think um, so. My work is more understanding, sort of the basics of visual systems and understanding Mm -hmm. what wavelengths of light, different species can detect and trying to, to then translate that to what they are doing with that information. So what behaviors do different wavelengths inform in an animal? So a lot of, of organisms in the ocean, um, as I mentioned with the shrimp, they're moving up and down on a daily cycle, which is a massive you know, the biggest migration on the planet is happening every yes. night as as animals are moving up from the depths and then back down during the day. And it's hugely important to, you know, um, cycling of nutrients and, and you know, mm-hmm. ecology of the ocean, ecosystems, all, dynamics, all of these things. Um, and that is all potentially all being driven by light. Light is certainly a component to it. We're not really sure how it's being integrated into that movement yet, but um, so understanding, I think, what wavelengths they're sensitive to is sort of a first step to understanding what a particular source of light pollution, what impact that's going to have. Um, and one of the things mm-hmm. that I think people are starting to think about, you know, in the ocean, most things see blue, the blue-green light, because that's the light that's available. Um, so changing the color of the light maybe may lessen the impact um to something that most animals in the system you're trying to protect can't detect um right another component of 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 vision is is temporal so um you know for for some of the things um on land understanding what frequency of sort of flickering light can an animal see um, is important uh, for either, whether you're trying to attract an animal or warn them away, understanding that may make an important difference. So all of these things, it's not just light, it's it's specific aspects of the light that may be impacting species. And so trying to understand mm-hmm. that, I think is, is where my research lies.
2: Yeah, I think the time quality of light is so important and actually you know there's that whole theory time doesn't really exist and that actually time is really um the movement of the earth it's the rotation and the revolution around the sun that's so we measure time really in uh space so it's it's kind of interesting but but light you know if you separate it from time i mean we can't just blare light uh 24 hours a day the whole point of balance with regard to the natural daylight cycle is that it has an arc and an ebb and flow that has actually been the same for all life's evolution on earth so the the aspect of time is is critical when it comes to light on earth and so um so i think one of the things that i draw from your work is just the the sheer Uh, diversity of vision that is has evolved on the planet. Um, I I think I was reading that there is even eyes placed on you know, we have eyes on our head, but are there eyes on other parts of the body as well for other species? And, um, and then there's also different photoreceptors. So here's a question for you. How has learning about how animals see the world changed how you see the world? Oh
3: that's that's a great question. Um it has certain certainly broadened my perspective. Um if not my own visual sense at least the way that I interpret um that information mm-hmm. some thinking about <laughs> uh all of the different types of um ways that animals detect light and and also I think it really makes you appreciate how artificial our, our lighting systems are um mm-hmm. and how much that's you know <clears throat> impacting us as a as a as an animal existing in the world um but also I just find it continually um sort of mind blowing and inspiring the more we learn about animal visual systems and the different ways they are put together and how you know, that they're processing information differently than we might think, that they're seeing, you know, light that we can't see. Um, they're they're doing incredible behaviors, you know, long distance migrations, um, using the Milky Way for navigation. I mean, all of these amazing things that um are all driven by light detection. Um mm-hmm. I I just I, I find it uh sort of <laughs> very moving and and inspiring in my own perspective of sort of the natural world to sort of deepen my understanding of that.
2: Yes. So, do you have a, a favorite species that you like to study, and/or is there a piece of research that that actually is provoking and and that you keep coming back to that because of it provides just a a infinite fascination for you.
3: I think, well, I have to say (laughs) mantis shrimp are probably my favorite uh, species, Uh group of species to study just because there's so much, their visual system is so different than what um, we understand about most other animals and we're still really trying to understand that. and I think my work has contributed to the sort of shift in the way that the research community sees um, the, the molecules for detecting light. There, there was sort of this dogma that, based on the handful of model species that had been studied, you know, there's a photoreceptor that detects red light. It's going to express a protein sensitive, you know, to red light there's a photoreceptor that's like sensitive to green it's it's expressing a protein that detects green and so there's sort of this one to one correlation uh, my work with with mantis shrimp and and a few other um early studies particularly in crustaceans have shown that for example mantis shrimp have up to 16 distinct types of photoreceptors but they're expressing mm-hmm. 30 or more different types of these opsins these these proteins for detecting light so there's something going on at the molecular level in detecting light that we don't understand yet. And so that's really um, it's a big mystery still. But, and I like mysteries and um, trying to find ways to, to understand pe- enough pieces of them that we can put together the, the full picture. so i think that's really you know where my research has has contributed the most is is just saying no there's not this one-to-one correlation some photoreceptors express lots of these proteins sensitive to different wavelengths of light and we have no idea why yet but just it doesn't make sense based on the way that we
2: understand vision so um there's a mystery well i mean we we hope that this podcast starving for darkness will help to pollinate and cross-pollinate ideas. And I will tell you that the lighting industry is very interested in the outcome of your research because we are also just getting into opsins, melanopsin for one, um, and how that impacts our own circadian rhythms. So while it may seem very theoretical in another animal, you know, tucked away all the way in Hawaii, actually, I think your research will become very important as we come to learn and understand just how impactful light is on how we feel and perceive the world. So I, I You also study the history of evolution, um, and you have um, a paper called Lost Along the Way, The Significance of Evolution in Reverse. Can you talk about this research and what you uncovered? Sure. Um... So
3: one of the because I think a lot about light and the way that light different light too. environments <laughs> impacts yes <laughs> the evolution of different visual systems right animals mm-hmm. aren't going to um evolve photoreceptors for light that isn't in their environment so that you know light environment is a huge piece of of thinking about the evolution of light detection um, but the opposite side of that is what happens when there is no light. Uh, so yes. I another sort of aspect of my research is is actually studying the only animals that live in the only environment we know to be true darkness. So if you think about the deep ocean where, where sunlight can no longer penetrate, there's still a, an amazing amount of light we know now from bioluminescent. There's a lot of things down there mm. that glow. So there's still light. Um, if there wasn't light, you wouldn't see probably eyes anymore. And lots of lots of deep sea things still have weird and bizarre, but they still have eyes. So the only you know habitat where there's true, truly no light is is underground. It's subterranean. So um, I've mm-hmm. done quite a bit of work in the study of um, animals that live comp- their entire life completely underground in in the dark. And um, trying to understand how lack of light impacts um, animals, since we know that light is so important to many, many biological processes and the way Mm -hmm. that animals interact with the world, what happens when that's no longer available? How do animals evolve to live in that kind of habitat? So it typically involves losing their eyes, um, no light, no longer need for eyes. Um, so, the eyes evolve so done,
2: out of the species? Is that what you're saying? So, they
3: are, um, there are many. The, the interesting thing about species that are adapted to live underground in cave um, or subterranean systems is that they tend to have very convergent um, pro, uh, traits. So, they tend mm-hmm. to lose, have no eyes, um, they tend to lose their pigmentation. Um, they tend to have lower metabolic rates related to sort of accessibility of food in that environment. They tend to have expanded their other sensory capabilities. So they tend to have a lot more, say, mechanosensors or, or chemosensors, uh, really long limbs. Um, so there's this whole suite of characters that is associated with living in these environments. Um and I That's have been really trying to understand particularly the visual, the loss, what happens when you lose a visual system, basically?
2: <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, I have heard that when a human loses a sense, uh, whether it's vision or hearing, that actually it's been reported that people experience a greater sense from another sense. So that the, that the if they lose their vision, then they're, suddenly their hearing becomes so much more heightened. So I I think it's kind of interesting if you just think about that more spiritually perhaps that you know if you snuff out one sense that the organism evolves to have other ways of gleaning around them their environment so that's really interesting to see that that's happening down below in the waters
3: yes and it's um it's it's sort of a really unique habitat. And it's another instance that I can think of where I don't think many people experience a true lack of light ever. So sitting quietly in a cave with all the lights off, like you really hone in, like you sort of zoom in on yourself, like you can hear your blood, your heart beating. Um, Mm -hmm. It's just this very sort of spiritual experience where Everything else is all of your other senses. Your vision is gone, so all your other senses sort of um, just in that moment are heightened. Um, It's it's really. I mean, Megan, don't get
2: me started on that. I'll tell you. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So, I mean, I'm assuming based on what you just said that you have heard of the deep time experiment that happened in France recently, where I believe it was 40 scientists went into a cave and I think they maybe they were there for 40 days I think they were there for 40 days and it was an experiment to talk about the perception of time which is funny to think about and I think time as I said earlier is this amorphous thing that we measure but actually time really much shifts like if you've ever been on vacation those first few days last forever and then you're like oh my god this is going to last forever and then the second half of the week just zooms by (laughs) and that for me is an example of of how time actually does bend a little bit um but i think that's that experiment is so interesting and important and i have recently written that light brings our awareness outward and darkness brings our awareness inward mm. and as you're saying it you can feel your heartbeat you're suddenly aware of your inner state and i truly believe that humankind is lacking that meditative moment of inward directed thinking and awareness and so the fact that you're studying creatures that have never experienced light i do think is very important to really understand um, what this void does for a species Um, and so are there any interesting facts that you've come across from these deep water species from cave species yeah
3: I think so I've, I've studied it in a number of contexts and I am interested at the moment in how so people tend to think of eyes as you know you have an eye and then you don't have an eye or, you know, they just sort of appeared in animals one day is <laughs> yeah, this fully formed thing that, that worked the way that we are used to it working. And that's not how evolution has worked um, or how evolution works. And, and I'm interested in, there have been lots of people who have studied the, you know, how is it possible to evolve a, a complicated structure like an eye? Mm-hmm. Um, and what are the steps and the, you know, the pieces that come together for that to happen? Um, and I've really been interested on the, on the other side of that. So if you have an eye, you know, what, what is the process of losing it? So, um, I've been studying this group of, of flies that are parasites on bats and they have this really interesting mm-hmm. trajectory where they have different species have different degrees of reduction in their eye. Anywhere from sort of, you know, a typical, if you think of a typical housefly, um, they have Uh, compound eye, So they have lots of facets on that eye. Um, these, these parasitic flies have, you know, anywhere from like 10 facets down to two or one or none. And so looking at, you know, as their visual system is reduced, what pieces of it, you know, are reduced first, you know, what pieces what's happening at the molecular level, what's happening at the sort of structural level to understand how all of those pieces work together and how can you, sort of shrink down that structure and still maintain function, um, I think is really interesting. Um, and, and just gives us insight into, you know, lots of animals move around at night in very dim, dim habitats. And, and so, you know, how, how can you modify an eye and still keep it working when there's not that much light around?
2: It's so true. And I will say, you know, um, just in terms of two different species, I live with Ferdinand, my cat. And I mean, I'm blind as a bat in the darkness. And I know he's like got this acute vision. And yes. Sometimes I'm looking for him and he's just watching me look for him. <laughs> so <laughs> so I mean, he's like, she's blind as a bat. Um, But I, I have a funny question for you, which is, you know, if we go back up all the branches of evolution, did it all start from one eye or have there been almost, was, were, did the eye evolve from two sources or three? Was it the one eye that we sort of all start, started from, or did this invention happen more than once? So that's,
3: it's a really interesting question. And I think it depends on what, well, one, how you're defining an eye, but two, Hmm. what level are you looking at so for example the opsins the the proteins responsible for detecting light you can trace those back to a, a single sort of ancestral gene that at some hmm. point gained the ability to detect light and then you know diversified into all of the different versions of that we see in animal vision so at the molecular level there's sort of a single origin of light detection in this protein, um, but at the anatomical level, eyes probably evolved many, many times. Um, mm-hmm. And it's it's that animals, you know, it's advantageous for animals to have um, high resolution vision um, in many senses. And so, but where you draw the line between what is an eye and what is not an eye? Lots of animals have. Uh, can detect light when does it become an eye and so sort of that transition has happened many times in many sort of different uh, flavors so lots of animals have different types of eyes um, which are really interesting um, and you can see that um, so for example um, many things have eyes on their heads like we're used to right so they mm-hmm. have eyes that sort of look out sort of very from, from their, their head region and they, they interpret the world that way. Um, But I've been working with a good friend of mine, excuse me, (coughs) who is studying the evolution of eyes in worm fan worms. So these marine worms Mm -hmm. that stick these um, tentacles out in the water for feeding, and their body is down in a tube. And in fan worms, lots of species have eyes out on these, these feeding tentacles. Um, wow, not on the head at all. And there's, some species cover their tentacles and eyes. Some have two giant eyes. Um, some have just, you know, it, there's a huge diversity of eyes that they've put on their feeding tentacles because that's the only part out in the world that is susceptible to being eaten by a, pred- a predator. Right. So right. You know, that's that's an example of that's clearly a different um, evolutionary origin of eyes than and many of the things we're used to. So right. lots of examples like that.
2: You also had spiders on your website. How do spiders yes. see the world differently?
3: Well, I'm still trying to understand that myself. Again, so we're used <laughs> to you know, things with, with two eyes that, you know, sort of look out and and give you depth perception and sort of a, you know, a, a certain field of view and where your eyes are in your head will give you different fields of view for example fish well, have two eyes but they're on the sides right
2: does that is um, that saying i i thought i had to learn that if the eyes are on the sides it's generally a species of prey but if they're looking in this in, uh, right ahead is generally a predator species would you agree or disagree with that statement i think i
3: would <sighs> generalizations and biology are hard because there are always going to be exceptions. And so I'm yeah. thinking of all of the exceptions to that. So things like, um, like I, I, have a pet chameleon and its eyes are on the side, but it can move them. Right. And it's definitely a predator. Oh my. Um, so, wow. um, I think there are, there, there are things that are predators that have, side facing eyes, but you, you know, you can put eyes up on stalks or they can be movable. So you can sort of point them in whatever direction you need to. So there are lots of ways around that sort of limitation, <laughs> I guess. Um, I see.
2: And so what about spiders? Yeah. Cause spiders are definitely predators.
3: Spiders are definitely predators. Uh, and they again are an interesting animal to think about because we are very much interacting in, to, in our world in this sort of, you know, bimodal way i mean it gets integrated into a single picture in our eye but thinking about spiders who have eight eyes um so i think the way to think about it is that so we have our pair of eyes and we use it to gather all of the information we need for whatever behaviors we're trying to do moving around the world you know those sorts of things i think spiders have basically divided up their eyes, you know, into different, different sets that provide different information for different behaviors, maybe is the best way to think about it. So they often have these really big um, primary eyes that are forward facing and would be analogous to our eyes or two big eyes Mm -hmm. up on the front of their head that are used for hunting. And so high resolution spatial vision, um, but then they have all these other eyes that are doing other things and pointed in different directions have different field of views. Um, my research in in spiders has been trying to understand what options they have. So do they have color vision? Mm -hmm. Um, and then if they have options that detect colors of light, what eyes are they expressed in? And so you, you, we're starting to see patterns where, you know, there are different sets of options expressed in different eyes. So, Clearly, they're doing something different with respect to color. At least, um, I still don't understand what all of the eyes are doing. But <laughs> it's a, it's yeah. a, again, it's an interesting puzzle when you see that sort of division in a structure. It certainly suggests specialization. Just specialized for what? And and I am I am not a spider biologist, so I'm learning as I go. So if someone out there knows, I would love to. <laughs> have a conversation. Yeah. Uh, I'm, I've, I'm still working on understanding spiders myself. Um, the molecules I understand, um, understanding how that integrates into the full sort of visual um, capability of an animal is, is the next step.
2: Yeah, it's interesting how a spider would perceive the world. And it, it does feel though that everything is very radial. It has eight legs around its body. Mm-hmm. I It has eight eyes, I didn't realize that. And even the web itself is extremely radial. So it's funny to think that, you know, it has this sort of uh 360 perspective or maybe 180, yeah. but that's very interesting. And so we recently had Dr. Mika Brodsky, your compatriot in Hawaii, Mm -hmm. um, your wildlife compatriot, and that's actually (laughs) how we were introduced and so lucky to have you on the show. I'm wondering, so uh, for those who didn't listen to the episode, Dr. Mika Brodsky, he is from the Hawaii Marine Animal Response, and they rescue and protect marine animals. Does your work at all interact in Hawaii, in wildlife? It seems like the scale of your species is a bit different. But I'm just wondering. It it is a
3: bit different. Um, I think the way that it interacts right now. um, I I believe you'll be talking to one of my graduate students, um, Hannah Moon. Yes, Hannah Um, Moon. Yep. Yes, and uh, in the next month or so, Um, and so she's really doing constant sort of investigating. Visual systems from a conservation perspective, um, and so you'll hear a lot more about it, but so she's trying to understand seabird vision. We have a lot of endangered or threatened seabirds uh, here in Hawaii, and they um, are night flyers, and so mm-hmm. there are lots of ways that artificial lighting confuses them, impacts them, causes you know causes mortality, uh, but no one has really studied the underlying way that their visual systems work. So there's a lot of conservation efforts going into trying to protect these birds and design lighting systems to either um, keep them from being attracted to human population centers or to light things like power lines up that they run into so that they can avoid them without understanding how they're perceiving the world. And so her work is really aimed at understanding that so that we can do better at um, the sort of resource management and conservation management to to protect the animals. Um, so that's that's again yeah. sort of where that's the most direct example um, uh, in in sort of the research that's happening in my lab. But I think you know there there are plenty of opportunities for the future to think about those same sorts of questions with with marine animals, which is where most of the things I study and understanding how you know by understanding what they can perceive how they're detecting light that can inform the ways that we are lighting human structures um, in a way that hopefully can mitigate the impacts um, that it's having.
2: Yeah, and the, the bird issue is, is particularly interesting um, and so needed. We've lo- we're losing a billion birds a year in North America due to fatal flight into buildings, and that's just that aspect of it. Um, red light has been shown in studies to actually send birds to migrate off in the wrong direction because it actually interrupts their ability to use magnetoreception in their bodies. Um, so that type of research would absolutely be gobbled up um, to better light our environment. So it's yeah. it's uh, nice to hear that your lab would be focusing um, on really direct Benefits to the lighting industry because right now, you know, that information is really not known or understood uh, in the larger collective consciousness of the lighting industry. Yeah. Um, we don't light for wildlife; we light for human activity, pretty much only. So, I I have been a firm believer that it is a false dichotomy that we um, can not only light for human activity, but we can also protect wildlife, and that. Um, we're just kind of cheating ourselves to think that that, those two things are mutually exclusive. Um, So understanding the impact of light on different opsins and different bird species could be amazing because to this day, I don't even know why it's red light or understand the evolutionary process of why red light. Uh, The one explanation I heard, which was really not good enough, was that red light mimics the light of spring. I don't even understand that that explanation because I don't really think of spring vernal equinox light as being reddish. So that doesn't even make sense to me. So I'm just telling you right now, your research is absolutely <laughs> needed. <laughs> we need oh, well, more understanding. You. Well, and yeah. I think it's
3: interesting, again, that sort of understanding that difference between how we perceive the world and how an animal does really will let us find you know the differences are important as well um, so understanding the differences in how we see the world and the, the sorts of lights we can detect and that we need you know can we find areas that are different enough that will work for us but isn't going to impact another species so it's all, all about understanding both sides of that in order to find lighting solutions that work. Um, And it's species dependent, unfortunately, so you have to go out and do a lot more sort of just basic science groundwork to be able to to answer that in a broad scale way.
2: Yeah, and there's been research that's shown that pollinators choose differently when there's LED light present because it skews the colors of the flowers. So one of the first Mm -hmm. things that I thought of when, when looking over your research was just wondering how much... A stray light reaching these aquatic ecosystems is actually skewing the colors beneath. You know, perhaps as you're saying, there are species that use light as camouflage um, so that they can't be seen from below. That maybe there is a, a negative impact of light that really changes the relationships of the prey and the predators. I, I mean, that's that's just an example of potentially what yeah. could happen. It's not yeah, that it certainly. is happening.
3: Yeah. Um, yes. Yeah. Anytime you're shifting the light environment and, and animals are, you know, evolved to work within say blue light and you're throwing a bunch more light in there. um, It's going to have impacts. What those are it can be hard to predict sometimes, but for sure.
2: Yes. So, um, we, you are uh, also according to your Twitter description are a diver <laughs> caver, yes hiker crafter yes. and lover of weird eyes who studies animal vision evo devo so evolution development i i wasn't yes. familiar with that speak but i figured it out um so <laughs> i i love to hear about people's tangential pursuits and what that brings what they are able to bring back with them to their work and what their work gives their tangential pursuits or their art so how have i mean especially i mean diving I think is really obvious, I think you're when you're diving, you're communing with nature, but i mean if you have um had any special interactions as while you're diving, I'd love to hear about it, but you also craft and and so and you hike, so how have these endeavors really made you a better scientist
3: i mean I think. So, so hiking in particular here, I focus a lot on the marine well realm. Um, so mm-hmm. uh, getting into tr- natural terrestrial systems, which can be hard here in Hawaii, we've lost so much of our, our native forests, but um, getting into those, those natural native spaces. Um, I, I love Hawaii, The the forests here. For me, growing up in the Midwest, I'm used to you know deciduous forests and, and you know a particular kind of forest. Coming here, where the forests are, say, um, ferns, <laughs> you have mm-hmm. ferns that are tree tree sized and and diversity of ferns, and the is such a different experience mm-hmm. being out in nature when that community is so different it it was it was really surprising to me actually the first time I hiked through a native Hawaiian forest how different it felt wow. um yeah and so I think that is important to experience those different natural spaces um
2: mm-hmm.
3: and and really just communion with nature but I mean as a biologist I just I'm doing it because I enjoy that and I want to understand that and so you know going out and observing nature and different types of natural environments, um, you know, seeing things, species, plants, animals, you know, observing interactions. That's where as, as, a you know, biologist, we, we, we see something unusual, We're like, huh, I wonder how that works. Like that's, that's how we mm-hmm. get our basic inspiration is going out, uh, observing the natural world and asking questions. So that sort of keeps that, that curiosity and that sort of, um inquisitive nature alive, I think, in some sense.
2: Mm-hmm. And what kind of crafts do you do?
3: Oh, um so a little bit of everything, I guess. Right now I'm <laughs> I'm very much into um I make quilts and sew and um right mm-hmm. now I'm I'm into basket making at the moment mm-hmm. <laughs> for for some reason. Um I think a friend inspired me into that path. Um so I just I like I, I see a direct link between creative, cre- being creative and creative endeavors and, and science. Um, I think they're very much intertwined in ways that aren't always appreciated. And you have to be creative as a scientist. Um, you have to be able to see the world from a different perspective, sometimes to find questions, to, to really get behind. And answer questions in in a new way that people haven't thought of, and and I see that as, as directly tied to to being creative in other aspects of my life. So so that that sort of making things and being creative and trying to piece together how things fit, like if you're sewing a quilt or or piecing together a basket or like that one, it's sort of it's very uh, meditative for me. To, to get yep. into that headspace that's away from work. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. But I think also sort of exercising that um, creativity portion of my brain that helps me when I do come back to science because I'm, you know, I, I, I'm used, you know, you, you sort of exercise that ability, I think, to think uh, differently and see things differently and piece things together in new ways. So that's, I, I see them as very intertwined endeavors.
2: Yeah, I, I love your answer, and it's like exactly why I asked the question, because I think there's something very special that happens when you're doing a repetitive movement, like making a basket with your hands, that it, it occupies enough of your brain to then let another part of your brain yeah. free run. And have exactly. you when you get into that place of flow, I think that flow state is really it's almost like a lubricant for creativity and in, in many other aspects of life, because there's been many times where I personally am doing something creative off topic, but then a, an idea which is more based in my work comes through because my brain was suddenly occupied and that it left space for another sort of deeper running current in my my brain have you ever had a great idea come through while you've been basket weaving or diving or doing these less uh work-related activities
3: oh absolutely I, i find that when i when i clear my mind um and do that you know whether sometimes when it's you know i'm out running and just letting my my brain wander or swimming or diving like if if you can hit that flow state as you said um ideas sort of just bubble up uh and if you're sort of learn to to be in that moment but pay attention to that um like a lot of my really good ideas have come from from those sorts of moments where i'm not focused or think really even thinking about science i'm just letting my mind wander and it it finds ways to make those connections that i wouldn't be able to force consciously absolutely yeah
2: and and i think This also goes back to darkness and the importance of it, because I feel like, you know, a little bit the modern conception, especially in America here, that is, you know, we should work X amount of hours per week at maximum efficiency. Lights will be on from the minute we wake up to the minute we go to sleep. Um, If I get an email, I'm still obligated. It doesn't matter what time it is. So there's this always on factor. And we've robbed ourselves of a different way of perceiving and thinking. And I think art and artistic pursuits or pursuits that aren't directly tied to a livelihood can provide a waking version of this um, different way of perceiving our work and, and um, asking questions about it, as well as darkness is, brings a different mind state that also gives access to a different perspective. So I, that's why I love asking people about their art in the world, because I think it's such an important aspect. And also, you know, we tell children, oh, try soccer, try art. We have them try all these different things, but we don't encourage that so much in adults. And I think there's yeah. a loss there for sure. For sure.
3: Yeah, no, I agree. I have <laughs> I have, with varying degrees of success at different points in my life, but always tried to, um, Connected to a creative endeavor in some way, just because I do feel it is so important to our our well being as as a as an individual, right? Um, there's a there's a connection there that that uh, is hard to find in other places.
2: Mm-hmm. So you are on which island in Hawaii? Oahu. And so i'm interested in your island culture um actually we're having uh someone come on uh from the island of nantucket which is on the east coast here um and what i i think is so interesting about these islands is that you're far enough away from the mainlands that you could actually gain control of light pollution because it's a smaller um, area of land to actually make a difference so could do you, are you seeing any awareness rising or are you seeing more awareness than before? Um,
3: so I have been here for six years, so I'm not sure that I have a long enough perspective to, to know mm-hmm. sort of, uh, if, if perceptions around lighting are changing. I hope so. I think as more research is done and people talk about it more, and there's, there's just more awareness, and that sort of filters out into the, you know, a broader group of people and into the community, I think that that, that will make a difference. Um, I think the hard part about um, the islands here is getting that to filter into the tourist industry, and um mm-hmm. particularly here on Oahu, um, you know where we we have, say Waikiki, which is you know full of hotels and um, lit up at night, the beaches lit up at night, um, changing that mindset, I think is going to be the hardest um, but i I think it's possible, and I think it's possible if we can get the community behind it and sort of that comes from within um. I think that's gonna be the biggest challenge here is, is changing the, the mindset of the tourist industry and the hotels and the um, that side of things.
2: Yeah, and what is your just your citizen opinion when you look up at the dark sky? Do you have a, a decent access to the stars?
3: There are certainly parts of the islands Yes. Here, so um, in Honolulu, in the Honolulu side of the island, it's pretty hard. Um, Mm. I remember my husband and I, like occasionally, like when the the meteor, a meteor comes through and I like drag him out in the middle of the night to go see shooting stars, it can be really hard without driving across the island to find someplace dark Mm. enough to really appreciate it. Um, There are still places on the other islands where you do get night skies, dark night skies. Um, and that's amazing when you find those places, but it, it can be hard on this island and we're the most populated. So even right. here in the middle of the ocean, it can be difficult. Um, but yeah. there are places in the islands where that's possible. And I hope people, you know, as, as populations grow, that that, that is a, a priority as a, as a community be set as a high one that people try to preserve those those night skies
2: people just don't yet know what they're missing and so i really yeah. believe that if we can get them to remember how good darkness can feel and how beautiful the stars are that we could actually tip the awareness and get the stars back by 2030 so megan thank you so much for for coming on the show. It was wonderful to pick your brain about all things visible and the crazy eyes that are out there watching <laughs> all that humans are doing. And so I think your thank work you. is so important and that it really is needed. And I can tell you firsthand from the lighting industry, we are studying opsin's in the human eye. So your research will be used and will be important to our work in the future. So thank you for sharing it with us. And
3: thank you for coming on the show. Thank you.
0: It's been my pleasure. Folks, I know you just fell in love with Starving for Darkness. Once again, every show is such a mind blower for me. And I'm so grateful for our guests and for Jane Slade and everything, all the work she's doing and all the contributions everybody's making. But before we do, we got to go to the magicians. We got to thank them. Evluma.com. That's E-V-L-U-M-A.com. Hover over products. Click on Dark Sky Friendly Lighting and let's do it. Greg, what do they got down
1: there? Well, with their OmniMax product, it maintains illuminance efficiently. They said that once. I'm like, that's important because, um, or ambiance, I should say, efficiently. Ambiance and lighting. Mm. They have the Kelvin temperatures covered, and they make it efficient by being LED. So they've got everything you need without sacrificing the light you love.
0: So Starving for Darkness thanks you folks. Go to... Starting for Darkness.com, but also I have Luma, the magicians. That's E V L U M A.com. Come on, click it. Hover over products. Click on dark sky friendly lighting and get her done. Thanks for listening, folks.